Good evening, Kairos. It's so good to see you. My name is Danny. I'm a pastor here. And uh, holy smokes, it's just wonderful to worship with you tonight. Uh, we want to start off tonight's talk with this question. What or who are some of your biggest influences in life? Go ahead and discuss that with one, two, three, 27 people around you, whatever it might be. Uh, but what is it? What, are, what or who are some of your biggest influences in life? Go for it. All right, all right, and all right. Uh, I love hearing your buzzing voices. Again, I'm just so glad to see you. I was looking at the events calendar uh, this week, next week, all the weeks. There's always so much that you could be doing, and you're choosing to be here. You're choosing to worship. You're choosing to be with friends, growing in your faith um, individually, but also as a group, as, a, as the family of God. So turn to the person next to you and say, way to go, you. You're here. Nice. Uh, I have a question for you, um, different from the last question, but when was the last time that you felt like a fraud? Like you just felt like a big old phony? Some of my favorite words. Oh no, he's a phony. I felt like a phony. I mean, a big time phony on Friday night. I told you a couple of weeks ago a story about when I was refereeing a volleyball game and how that went very poorly because I don't understand the rules of volleyball. I also just don't understand the flow of the game of volleyball. My wife and I are on our church team for a city volleyball league. Uh, we are the Hope Ames Hopesters. Just made that up on the spot. But we're the Hope Ames volleyball team and we're in the city league. Uh, last year, we won the championship. Can you believe that? Don't get too impressed. It was in the C League. Um, and don't be too impressed by me. I was a part of one match. I sat out the rest of the matches. Uh, so this year we got promoted into the B League. Um, I know, big time, right? Seriously. So I'm walking in feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, I mean, I'm watching the C games. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Like, sorry, I, I just laughed and like snot came out everywhere. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that's like really cute, you know, the, the C League. Uh, but I'm on the B team. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And, and so uh, we, we're in there. They're about to serve the ball for the first set. And, and the first few, like, uh, volleys, points, the, the ball wasn't really coming my way. And I'm like, well, of course, they're terrified of, of the D-man. Um, that's what I call myself when I wake up and look in the mirror in the morning. Come on, D-man, today's your day. No, it's not. Anyway. It was probably about like five or six points in when the ball finally came to me. And that's when I was reminded how much I hate volleyball. Um, because the ball hurts so bad when it hits your forearms. Anybody here an avid volleyball player? How? Like, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the ball slapping your forearms and popping your blood vessels? The problem is, is for some of you, when you play volleyball, the ball slaps off your forearms and it just goes perfectly to the setter who then sets it to the spiker or the, the killer, whatever they want to call them. And they're, they're, they're killing the ball in, into the floor. You guys know what I'm talking about if you're volleyball fans. Yeah, kill, kill, kill. Anyway, um, and, and, and so I, when the ball slaps off my forearms, I mean, it just like immediately, it just takes a line straight out of bounds. And it's like, I'm like, okay, well, come on, D-man, you're fine, right? Like, you're going to rebound. It wasn't too long until the other team started to realize I was the weak link on our team. And I started to get exposed. 
And I started to feel like a phony, like a fraud. And the other team obviously knew it because they began to serve the ball to me every single point. And it was humiliating and it was embarrassing. And I've always prided myself on saying, I'm not a quitter. I don't quit anything that I start. I have contacted at least seven people to fill my spot on the Hope Ames volleyball team. And now I'm contacting a couple hundred people. Would you please fill my spot on the Hope Ames volleyball team? Because out there on the court, I'm a complete fraud. And I want to quit because of that. I'm not good at it. It's really hard. I think that sometimes when we're feeling like a fraud, we quickly give up because we say, that's not for me. As we conclude this sermon series called How to Read the Bible, we're hopping into a book called Hebrews. Everybody say Hebrews. This is a book called Hebrews. And Hebrews is talking to a group of people who feel like frauds. They feel like phonies. I don't know why I have to say it like that, but I just do. Christianity's hard. It's a difficult experience. Maybe you know that from being a young adult and trying to be a Christian. It's not all the time the easiest thing in the world. So to me, Hebrews is one of the most relatable books in the entire Bible. They're realizing that following Jesus is a difficult sometimes experience. And for that, they want to step out. They want to quit. Or maybe they want to make adjustments to their faith. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of the quick facts about Hebrew. The first thing is, here's the purpose of Hebrews. It's to present the sufficiency and the superiority of Jesus. I tried to make that sound as elegant as, and as fancy as I could, but I'm, I'm going to put that in a very simple way in just a minute here. The original audience, as I said, it's these early Hebrew Christians, and they're struggling with their faith. The reason why they're struggling with their faith is because these are people who grew up in ancient Jewish tradition. And so these are people who have abandoned their former faith and are now following Jesus saying, I believe that he is the Messiah and the one that our faith has been pointing to for thousands of years. Now imagine if you go home and you tell your families, hey, I met this new leader. Uh, he died, but I believe that he rose from the dead and he loves me and I'm gonna follow him the rest of my life. I mean, can you imagine the discomfort that they must have felt in every single social setting, in every single family setting, in all of their lives? They felt like frauds. They felt like phonies. They felt like phonies at home with their family because I'm not like you anymore. But then also in their faith, that's really difficult to keep going. It's hard. And so they felt like quitting. And so the author of Hebrews is telling them, you can keep going because Jesus is enough. He is sufficient and he is superior to your phoniness, to your weakness, to your issues, to your questions, to the difficulties that come about when we follow Jesus. Here's a key verse in, book of, in the book of Hebrews. It's found in chapter six, verse 19. It's Jesus is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. He leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now that's kind of this really fancy um, and beautiful way of saying Jesus really loves you and he's not going anywhere. Part of the reason why we feel like a fraud or why we feel like a phony is because we realize that we're pretty inconsistent. And because we're inconsistent, why keep it anything at all, right? I mean, my goodness, if I can't keep the faith going in every single aspect of my life at all times in the perfect ways, why should I keep going? I'm just a phony. I'm just a fraud. But what we're learning about Jesus in the book of Hebrews and what we're learning about Jesus 
throughout the story of the Bible that points to Jesus, tells the stories of Jesus, and shows that the whole purpose of our lives is Jesus, we are finding that Jesus is the one who is consistent. He is an anchor for our souls. This is what the Bible is telling us. This is specifically what the book of Hebrews is telling us. What do you believe about Jesus? If I were to say Jesus is, how would you finish that sentence? Now, I'm not just saying who is Jesus according to what you believe when you're sitting in church, but really, like, honestly, in the thick of life, when Christianity gets difficult, who do you believe Jesus is then? And sometimes we realize Jesus is uncomfortable, he's different, he's countercultural, he's convicting, he's offensive, he's transformative, he's non-conforming, he's uncontrollable. He's all these different things that make me feel uncomfortable. It's hard to keep up with him, it feels like. I don't know if I can follow him for much longer. But the Bible's pushing back on this. Yes, he's uncomfortable. Yes, he leads us sometimes into difficult places. But once again, in Hebrews chapter six, it's he is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. He is not going anywhere. He loves you. He cares for you. And when we think about an anchor, we're like, oh, nice. That sounds really cool. Anchors are neat. I have an anchor tattooed on my bicep. No, I don't. That would be weird. I don't have biceps, but you get the point. But what does an anchor really do? I mean, like when life is inconsistent and it feels crazy and it feels overwhelming and you don't think you can do enough anymore and you feel like quitting, sometimes it's because it feels like the waves of life are just crashing in your face. And what does an anchor do when the waves hit? An anchor disappears. It goes deep underneath the surface of the water. There's nothing cool about an anchor. I can't see it anymore but it goes deep and it goes to a place that I can't go. It goes to the rocks of the sea, the immovable things in a world that feels so inconsistent and movable. It goes to those places, but here's the most beautiful thing about an anchor. The anchor is committed to the boat and the anchor is committed to you. Yes, an anchor will be difficult at times because you can't always see the anchor. And the point of the anchor is to keep you right where you are. Wait, the anchor is not gonna stop the waves? Wait, the anchor is not necessarily gonna make this, it's maybe not gonna make it easier all the time, but it will stop you from drifting. It will stop you from tipping. It will stop you from sinking. And this is who the Bible is telling us Jesus is. And the Bible is telling us Jesus is enough. Everybody just say, Jesus is enough. Now, it's so easy to say that when the pastor tells you, and maybe it's, I don't know, easy to say that, to say in a church setting, because it's what you're supposed to say, right? But do we really believe that? Like, in our heart of hearts, in the core of who we are, I think that sometimes we feel like a fraud and we feel like quitting and we feel like giving up on the most important things in life, like our faith, when we start to realize how inconsistent we are. I'm not an anchor. I'm a phony. I'm a fraud. There are different um, psychologists, but also uh, philosophers who have talked about this. There's a, a philosopher named John Novak. He's a Christian philosopher. And he wrote about these three different kinds of beliefs. Belief is another word for faith. And he talked about how there's a public belief, and this is what I say I believe. 
And I mean, this is kind of easy stuff because I am my own favorite uh, uh, public relations agent, right? Bang, okay, sorry, I'm just gonna name that. Uh, we're good, are we good? Everything okay? Can I, can I get like a, a cue from somebody who works here? Everything good? The door, the door opened and closed, right? I didn't imagine that. I can't see everything because of the lights. So you probably all saw something I did not see. We're good? Okay, I'm seeing BJ, our guy who leads our security, that we're good to go. Okay, sweet, I'm sorry, I just had to name that because like, I can't see, I, I can just, I walk by faith, not by sight. There's my Jesus joke, juke to get me back in it. Holy smokes. All right, here we go. So public beliefs is the thing that I say that I believe, right? And like, I am my favorite PR agent. I want you to think all sorts of things about me, and so I, I say these things. These are the things that are easy for me to want other people to think about me. But then there's a deeper level of my belief, and that's my private belief. And these are the things that I think I believe, right? These are the things that I know it's a good thing, it's valuable, and that should be the way that my heart works. And I tell myself, this is what you believe. And then there's your core belief, and this is what you really believe. This is what happens when life gets difficult and how your life operates even when life doesn't go the way that you planned for it to go. These are your core beliefs. And one of the ways that we realize that these things don't necessarily go together all the time are in everyday circumstances when it comes to, do, when it comes to our expectations of other people and our expectations of ourselves. Uh, recently, my wife and I were in an airport and... Uh, and, and, and I, I find in airports, like, this is the place where my patience is tested more than absolutely anything at all. Like, as a pastor, and as a Christian, and as a hopefully decent person, I try to tell people, I'm patient, right? And you should be patient. And we should all just give grace to one another, right? But in airports, you're just naturally inclined to be an impatient person. You're getting into a metal tube that's going to transport you hundreds of miles in the air from one part of the country to another, or from one part of the world to another part of the world. It's quick and it's fast, and so you just get in this expectation. Everything in my life needs to be quick and fast. Everything in an airport is made so that you get places faster, including the moving walkway, right? Anybody here ever like gotten into a fight on a moving walkway? I mean, it is a dramatic place because on one side, you've got the walking lane and on the other side, you've got the standing lane. I will tell you this. I have stood in the standing lane so many times. I love standing in the standing lane of the moving walkway. If this thing is gonna move me, why do I need to move any faster? If I wanted to walk, I'd get off the moving walkway. And so sure enough, as people are rushing by, I'm thinking in my mind, <laughs> impatient. What's wrong with these people? I mean, you know, people like bump you like, oh man, the person is just such in a hurry. They really need to slow down their life, right? But then of course, my wife and I, we had like a really quick turnaround to get from one flight to another. Is when we were traveling internationally. And so it's like really important that we get from one flight to another. And as I'm like sprinting, I see that there's a moving walkway and this is in Amsterdam. And as I get to the moving walkway, I'm like, okay, perfect. I see the clear lane. As I'm sprinting even now through the moving walkway, Probably a very innocent and decent man in most places of his life has the audacity to step in my way in the walking lane of the moving walkway. And you might think, oh, Danny, you're a pastor. You probably walked up to him and said, God bless you, sir. Would you mind if I, if I move around you? I went as close as I possibly could so that he could feel me breathing on his neck. I wasn't gonna confront him. I was just gonna make him feel me. This is a moving walkway, sir. Walker, get off. 
Like what, what's happening in that situation? What's happening in that situation is my public, my private, and my core beliefs are splitting. How do we remain faithful people when our public, private, and core beliefs are splitting? When the thing that we really believe is contradicting what we think we believe and what we think we believe is contradicting what we tell people we believe. It's in these difficult areas of our life when things feel a little bit out of control, well, maybe we're feeling a little bit impatient, especially when it comes to our expectations of people around us and maybe even our expectations about ourselves where we realize we're tempted to split our beliefs, aren't we? And maybe when we're tempted to split our beliefs, we're, tempt we're tempted to just split on it. Just get out. But the book of Hebrews wants to encourage you to do something else, to keep with it, to stick with the anchor, because the anchor's sticking with you. The Bible tells us this in the book of Hebrews chapter four, and you heard this in the Bible reading tonight. The word of God, everybody say word of God. The word of God, that's what we've been talking about through this series. And what we find in this, in this passage right here is that it's not just us reading the word of God, but it's the word of God reading us in a way that says, I know you better than you know yourself. I know what you tell people you say you believe. I know what you believe you believe. And I know the unshakable things about you, what you really believe in your heart, I know that sometimes your public beliefs are phony. I know that sometimes your private beliefs are fickle, but I know that your core beliefs are firm and I want your core beliefs to be rooted in the word of God. I mean, this is like the conversation that God's word is having with us. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's this living thing. It's breathing. It is this active personality. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. I told you earlier when I was playing volleyball, I felt exposed. Being exposed is not comfortable. And I have to imagine that being poked and sliced through with a sword is not comfortable either. I mean, that's the life of the Christian. It's uncomfortable at times. And sometimes it feels exposed, especially when we're realizing that these things that I'm telling people that I believe do not actually line up with the way that I'm really living my life. How do I stay faithful when these things are splitting on me? How do I stay faithful when I feel like a fraud? How do I stay faithful when I feel like I can't keep up with the faith anymore? continues to say, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Now, if you just read this at first glance, you might read this and think that it is a very intimidating and turn off sort of passage. Why in the world would I want to get close to a God like that? That does sound like a God I'd want to quit from. A God who slices me in half with a sword, exposes me for all that I am, shows the world my guts. I'm accountable to him. Stick with it. In order to be a fraud, you're attempting to get away with something. In order to be a fraud, you are deceiving people. In order to be a fraud, you are getting away with something that's not true. And the Bible's telling you right here, the word of God knows you. You can't fraud God. God knows you for who you really are. God knows what you project to the world around you. God knows what you're telling yourself you believe. And God knows what's deep down in your heart. 
And he knows how sometimes those things don't line up. But God doesn't leave you scattered. God doesn't leave you split apart into a bunch of different pieces. He knows what's there, but he's still sufficient. He's still enough. The passage continues in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 15. Now let us hold firmly to what we believe. Know what you really believe. At the core of your being, the thing that comes out when life gets difficult. Our high priest understands. Now, high priest would have been something that the people who are reading Hebrews for the first time would have really understood. A high priest was somebody in the ancient Jewish culture who would go into the temple and speak on behalf of the people. And then they would come out of the temple and speak on behalf of God. It was the person going in between people and God. It was almost this intermediary that would say, because you are not holy enough to be around God, I will go into God's presence for you. And I will communicate what God wants you to know. And here in Hebrews, the Bible's telling us Jesus is the high priest for all people. Jesus is the one who goes between us and God and says, you may be split, you may be inconsistent, you may struggle to keep with the faith, but Jesus, your high priest, understands our weakness because he faced all the same stuff, but he didn't quit. It says specifically he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Are you finding something pretty weird about this? It doesn't make sense. It starts off by saying, God knows you for who you really are. God knows what's really happening in your heart. You can't fraud God. He understands. He sees it. Even when you're a phony, even when you want to quit, and boom, you still get mercy and you still get grace. How? It's because you can't fraud God, but you also can't make him love you any less. And I'll add on to that. So you also can't make him love you any more. He loves you perfectly. Yes, God, Jesus, the high priest who advocates for us and speaks for us and speaks to us on behalf of God, he knows your weakness, but he also supplies you with strength. He supplies you with enough. He is enough. As I go into the kind of like closing piece of the sermon, I just want to show you a case study of what this looks like. And the Bible provides us a beautiful case study. And it's found in this incredible relationship, a friendship between Jesus and perhaps his best friend, Peter. Peter was kind of this like a wild disciple. And in some ways, Peter was thought to be the most famous disciple of the 12 who followed Jesus most closely. Part of it was just because Peter was the most vocal. Peter would oftentimes say things before he thought, which makes me feel like I can relate to Peter a little bit. Kind of like when I'm standing behind a guy on a moving walkway and I'm breathing down his neck just to let him know I'm here and I want him to move or leave the country, whatever it might be. And Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm uncomfortable? Do you think I'm different? Do you think I'm weird? Do you think I'm uncontrollable? Do you think I'm offensive? Do I bother you? Who do you say I am? Peter's the first one to respond. He says, you're the Messiah. Now I talked about this specific conversation in the sermon on Sunday, if you're here at Hope Ames on Sundays, but I wanna go a little bit deeper um, and, and show you where this leads. Peter's the first one to respond. Jesus' best friend, Peter. And he says back to him, you're the Messiah. 
In other gospel accounts, it says that he says, the son of the most high God. Peter's right. But then Jesus has this crazy response to him that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Jesus warned his disciples after that not to tell anyone about who he really is. Not to tell anyone, this is who I am, you're right about it, but don't go and tell them about it, please. He doesn't correct them. When Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus doesn't say, hey, Peter, you're getting a little crazy there. No, he says, yes, I am the Messiah, but now don't go tell anybody. Why would he do that? If you read just a little bit further there in the book of Mark chapter eight, Jesus goes on to say, immediately after he told them, don't tell anybody who I am, even though now you know who I am, the son of man, and he's talking about himself, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He, talking again about himself, would be killed, but three days later, he would be risen from the dead. Now, Peter, Jesus's maybe best friend, took Jesus aside, and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Now, I know that it sounds absolutely ridiculous to see a scene where someone is telling Jesus, how dare you tell me about yourself? But how many different times in my own life, oh my goodness, it's countless. How many different times in my own life have I told Jesus, I don't like the way that you're doing this. You are uncontrollable. You are different. You're kind of weird. You're non-conforming. You offend me. You convict me. You bother me. You're really hard to follow. It is so easy to follow someone when it always looks like they're winning. But here Jesus is saying, it's about to look like I'm losing and I'm losing really bad. And Peter rebukes Jesus for it. And Jesus says right back to him, get behind me, Satan. Has any of your friends ever called you Satan? I mean, what an insult. You're seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's. Later on in the book of Mark, Jesus would say, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus tell his disciples in that moment, don't you go out and tell people about me yet? Because who is the Jesus they were about to tell people about? Who did they believe about? What did they believe about the Messiah? If they were to fill in that gap, Jesus is, in their minds, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to save them, well, Jesus better be really strong. He better come with a spear in his hand, ready to take on their opponents. He better be ready to defeat everyone who would stand in between them and 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 perfected life, right? Like here on earth. But Jesus is reminding them, I did not come with a spear in my hand, but a spear in my side. I didn't come to take down your opponents. I came to defeat death and save all people. I didn't come to wear a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And this is a very convicting question. When you read the Bible and you read these stories about Jesus and someone asks you about Jesus, what are you telling people about him? Are you telling them that Jesus is just gonna make life perfect all the time? And the answer is no, he's not. If you've been following Jesus for more than like two hours, you just know sometimes Jesus leads us into difficult places when it's gonna be tempting to quit, 
What are you telling people about Jesus? Are you telling people that Jesus makes life super easy? Are you telling Jesus that he's represented by a certain political party? Are you telling Jesus that, Je- are you telling people, well, Jesus would vote this way? Are you telling people, well, Jesus wants to rule over this country? Are you telling people, well, Jesus would handle it differently this way? Or are you just telling people, Jesus loves you? He came to serve you. He came to die for you. He came to give you life. I think it's really important that we ask ourselves, like, are you allowing the world to shape your view of Jesus or are you letting Jesus shape your view of the world? Every single one of us sees life through a lens and it influences the way that we see this world. It influences the way that we see life. It influences the way that we think that life is supposed to operate. So how are you seeing this world? I thought that this was so fascinating. So here's a couple of pictures. Uh, if you're an NBA fan, you know that LeBron James broke the NBA scoring record last night. I think in my lifetime, this has got to be the craziest athletic record that's been broken. I mean, it, he scored over 38,000 points in the NBA. He started playing in the NBA over 20 years ago now. Uh, he's been in the NBA for longer than he wasn't in the NBA. This, this guy's crazy, right? And a lot of times he's compared to Michael Jordan. Here are two of the most iconic shots for either of them. This one for LeBron last night, making the shot that gave him the new record. And here's Michael Jordan hitting a shot in game six in the 1998 NBA Finals to defeat the Utah Jazz. I'm old enough to have seen Michael Jordan play. And I'm not going to debate with you, but Michael's still the GOAT. And it's fine. But, um, and if, if you want to fight me on that, it's futile. So it's all good. I, for the record, I am not like anti-technology. I'm not anti-phones. I'm not anti-2023. But do you notice a difference between the two pictures? Like, I can see two people in the picture on the right who aren't watching the game through a lens, through the camera on their phone. Now, I get it. In 1998, they, they didn't even have that option, right? I mean, there are a few people who are taking pictures and it's through a lens. But, but how are you seeing this world? Like, are you just seeing the world through a lens, through a camera? I mean, through what you believe this world is supposed to be like, according to how you read about it on social media? According to how someone who you think is really, really cool told you the way that this world is supposed to be? Are you seeing life through that lens, or are you seeing life for real? All of us are going to see life through a lens. Jesus says, I want you to see this world through me. I'm showing you life to the full. Not a life that guarantees earthly victories, but a life that guarantees mercy and grace even when you want to split on the faith. I want you to see this world through me. Now, don't get me wrong. If you see the world, go back a slide. If you see the world through a camera, back a slide, thank you. If you see the world through a camera, you're still going to see it, but you're not going to see it in fullness, are you? And I get it. We can look at that picture and kind of laugh at the people, but... How many of us would do the exact same thing? Now, to our credit, I was at Hilton Coliseum on Saturday. I didn't see any phones out. I just saw you cheering your brains out and saying some inappropriate chants, but we'll work on that. (laughs) (laughs) I was in the building, but more importantly, Jesus was in the building. (laughs) Filthy. Anyway. So here's a question about when you read the Bible, when you go to God's word. Do you read God's word through the lens of the world or do you see the world through the lens of God's word? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. 
There is a thief, he says, who's come to steal and kill and destroy, to take things from you, to make you think that you should just see life through a tiny little screen. And in that tiny little screen, you've got access to so many different things of information and there's so much life just right there, but it's high tech, but it's real low touch, isn't it? Do you read God's word through the lens of the world or do you see the world through the lens of God's word? Now, as we really start to close down this whole series, just here are three things that I want you to take away for how do we read the Bible, but more importantly, how do we approach God's word in the way that God intends for us to see this world? The first is expectantly but whose expectations? Not my expectations, but God's expectations. Listen, you got so many dreams for your life, and I think that that's so cool, but God's dreams for your life and God's expectations for your life, I promise you are better. There is more to life than making a lot of money. There is more to life than a degree. Those are really good things, and I hope you get all of them, but there's more to life than that. God expects you to have full life. He doesn't expect you to earn it. He's already given it to you. We can also read the Bible vulnerably. This is difficult, but God's word reads us. It's coming before God and saying, God, here are the things that I say, here are the things that I think, and here are the things that I really believe, and I know that you know all of it. But then the third piece is we get to read the Bible, we get to go to God's word faithfully as God's beloved children. When we read the Bible, we do it expectantly, we do it vulnerably, and we do it faithfully, not because of our own work, but because we see the work of Jesus loving us. Faith is a word in the Bible that literally means to be persuaded or convinced, and it's to trust. We trust by being convinced of something. And Jesus is showing us, I want you to see what real life is like. He's giving us the case. He's persuading us. This is what real life looks like. See it in God's word or see life through a little lens. One's gonna show you the fullness of life that could never be taken away from you and the other one will come and go. And you might see it, but you won't really absorb it. Jesus doesn't wanna leave us in those places. He wants us to have life and life to the full. Let me finish out this case study between Jesus and, the, and his best friend, Peter. Peter was saying, okay, I'm, I'm gonna follow you to the ends of the earth. And maybe you're feeling motivated like that in your faith. You're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm never gonna quit. I'm never gonna give up. You're right. Even if I feel like a phony, I'll, I'll just keep on going. On the night when Jesus was having his final meal with his disciples, we know it is the last supper. Jesus is having a conversation with them. And he tells Peter, Peter, you're, you're not gonna stick with me. You're not gonna keep up. You're gonna wanna quit. And Peter responds to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'm ready. I'll go to prison with you. I'd even die with you. He's making really big promises. This is his public belief. It's what he says he believes. And maybe it's even his private belief. Jesus, I, I believe, I really do. But Jesus knows when we're tempted to split on our public, private and core beliefs. And Jesus responds to Peter, I, I know you, Peter. Let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. As Jesus is taken away and arrested and led to his death, the book of Luke tells us that Peter's actually following at a distance. Far away. He's trying to keep up, he's trying to follow, but he's keeping his distance. 
this is getting really hard and he's starting to wonder, will I need to quit? One, two, and three people come up to him. You're, you're Peter, aren't you? You're the guy who follows Jesus. You're the one who tells everybody, this is what you believe. You know, at the core of your soul, this is what you believe, right? And what, what does he do? Three different times he says, no, I, I don't, I don't know him. And then in this like great, dramatic and incredible way, it says, as soon as Peter denies Jesus the third time, the rooster crows. And it says, at that moment, the Lord, Jesus, as he's being beaten by guards who have arrested him, turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Goodbye, God. You know, the text told us that Peter was trying to follow Jesus, but isn't it interesting? It sure seems like Jesus followed Peter. And where did he follow Peter to? Into the absolute pit of his life. Into the most shameful and lowest moment that he's ever experienced. The moment when he's completely given up on what he told himself, this was my core belief. And now he's a phony, he's a fraud. It's time to quit, it's time to get out. Goodbye, God. Jesus sees his best friend running away from him. And it says, the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And don't you know that sometimes when your eyes get covered really quickly, what's imprinted on your eyes is what you just saw before that? And I wonder if as they're saying, who hit you that time? I wonder if Jesus with his eyes covered and closed says, if, if you only knew, it's the man who ran away from me. And if that's the end of the story for Jesus, if he just goes and he just dies, and that's the only thing that we have faith in, then absolutely, we might as well quit. If Jesus is just a guy who comes with a spear in his side, just a guy who wears a crown of thorns, just a guy who dies, just a guy who loses, then yeah, we might as well quit because it's a bad example. Why live your life for so much pain? See, Jesus couldn't have his story end there because he couldn't have Peter's story end there either. Of course, you know this. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. And it says in the book of John that Jesus appeared to his disciples three different times. In the first two times, Peter must have been there, but it never says that Peter said a word to Jesus. Not even a word. You know that feeling when you've really done somebody wrong and you can't make eye contact with them? It's kind of like when you're in the crowd at Hilton and you're chanting a certain thing, but then you make eye contact with your parent who's attending the game too. Then you put your head down and you're like, I'm never gonna talk again. I don't know. <laughs> says that Jesus <laughs> walks up to the man who ran away from him. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, who's Peter? Simon, another name for Peter, son of John, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? And he uses this beautiful word for love. It's called agape. Everybody say agape. Agape is this unconditional, immovable, anchor-type love. It's a divine love that would never go away. Peter responds to Jesus and he says, Lord, you know I love you. But when he says love, he doesn't use the agape word for love. He uses a different word for love. Philos. Everybody say philos. And this means love, but, you know, it's friendship kind of love. And Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, agape. And, G and Peter says, well, I, I love you, philos. 
It's like Jesus is saying, can you love me like I love you, Peter? And it's like Peter saying back, I I can love you, but maybe not like you love me. Listen, (laughs) I love Jesus, but I I just can't love him like he loves me. I, I just can't. I'm incapable. I split, I quit, I'm a fraud, I'm a phony. But he's not a fraud. He's not a phony. And when he said he would be with you to the end of the age, he would. And so a third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And this time he doesn't even say agape. This time he just says philos. Peter, do you, do you love me? And Peter responds, yeah, it's just like that. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I knew it. He says, okay, follow me. As if to say, that's enough. Because I'm enough. Whatever love you have for Jesus, whether you feel like it's enough or not, he's enough. Even when you've quit on him, he's not quitting on you. I mean, my goodness, like no matter how many times we go to scripture and we read the stories about Jesus and his faithfulness and maybe it leaves us walking away, feeling like frauds. You can know this. The point of the Bible is not to make you feel like a fraud. The point of the Bible is to make you know that you are beloved, chosen, eternally valued by the infinite God who refuses to walk into eternity without you. Follow him, trust him. That is his persuasion that he'd go with you to the ends of the earth. When we walk away from him, he follows us. When we think we're following him, he's joined us in the pits of our lives, but he doesn't leave us there. He says, come on, follow me out. I'll show you real life, not through a little lens, but real life with your very eyes that you can see. Follow him. And then, I mean, for years to come, people would talk about Peter and Jesus, and we're still talking about them now. In 1 Corinthians chapter five, uh, the, the author Paul is trying to tell people, Jesus really did rise from the dead. I really want you to have faith in this. But he says, he was buried and he was raised from the dead. And on the third day, he, uh, uh, on the, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he says this, he was even seen by Peter. It's like people for generations to come were using this example to ask Peter about it. If you don't believe me, ask Peter about it. And Why? Peter wasn't so much convinced in his faith. He wasn't so much persuaded to follow Jesus because he had all the evidence right in front of him that made life super easy. It's because he had Jesus' love. Facts are really wonderful, but facts can only inform, but love trusts. And the reality is, is sometimes in this faith, you may not get all the facts that you want. It may not always be super easy, but you will get love. Facts inform, and that's really nice to fill your brain, but love trusts and it overflows from your heart. Keep the faith. See the world through the lens of God's word because he loves you. This is the God that you can trust. Uh, But the most important instruction I can give you is this. Jesus himself gives you that same invitation he gave Peter. Follow him. Follow him. Not just because you see all the evidence, 
but because you see his love for you. That's the invitation that's calling you forward. Amen. Let's eat, let's drink, let's dine with Jesus.